good morning, everybody. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. Today we're going to be back in the book of James. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn or tap your way to James chapter 1 still. I know, we're not moving very quickly, but we're going to kind of put some stuff together as we go. I don't know that I necessarily planned for James to be the perfect sort of Advent series, uh, but I do have a great deal that God's been doing in me in James, and I, I hope that he will for you as well. James chapter 1. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, please don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen. We'd love to give you a copy of the scriptures. And please grab one of those Gospel of John readers. It's a really interesting way. It's the same text, but it's a really interesting way of presenting it, which I think will catch off guard some people who think they already know the Bible, especially if you've got a friend who's only ever read the Bible in a very difficult-to-read translation. Giving them a modern English translation with that formatting, it kind of puts it into a different lane in your head. You embrace it a different way. It's very good, very effective. Please grab those. And I'm very thankful for Hope Church making that possible, that those aren't something you have to pay to take and do. Um, we can just provide them for you to go and, and try and share some hope with people. All right, so here's a new question. I think most people, when they look at James, the, the Christian sort of controversy around it is James's focus on works, and we'll get to that. But rather than sitting in controversy, let's just take a moment to receive the word from God through James, which is to be a doer of the word. Let me ask you if you've ever asked this question. Does a Christian have to obey God? Think about it. I don't know if you've asked this question out loud. Maybe you're more godly than that. I've asked this question to myself out loud, and I almost wonder if it's not a lot of the controversy around this whole James and Paul, Galatians and Jesus, sort of how do we get an understanding of right works and right faith and how they go together. I think that some of the motivation to keep stirring that pot is to say... Well, I'd really rather it be all grace and then just works when I'm ready. I don't know that I really want God to be much of a stickler about my behavior. If you say, oh my gosh, I'm scandalized that such Christians exist. Of course, holiness is the most wonderful and amazing thing that we should all be pursuing moment by moment. Okay, great. You're a liar. Most of us, and you too, are also struggling because... You're not objective. You don't want to just obey all the time. Oh, yes, I do. Well, let's just ask questions. Do you ever want a little gluttony, a little sluggardliness in your life? We say lazy, but the Proverbs talk about the sluggard. Do you ever want a little bit of lust in your world? You ever turned around quickly and seen your heart being proud? Last two times we've talked. Last time we said rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I don't know if you were into that or not. I don't know if you received that as a command. That's something God is commanding you to do, meaning if you don't do it, you're asking with your heart, with your actions, with your lack of actions. Does a Christian really have to obey God. The week before that, 
another and very different and also very difficult command from God. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It is a command from God to consider trials of various kinds with joy. And we've tempered that and we fluffed that out a little bit two weeks ago. We thought through that. But that's a command from the Father. If you are prone to grumble, then you're asking with your life this question. Does the Christian really have to obey God? You have all kinds of little thoughts that come in and try and shade and, and quickly try and, and recategorize the commands that you hear from Scripture. And you say, well, he doesn't really mean me, and he doesn't mean me in this situation because he doesn't know that there's these things that are also involved with this situation. And surely if he saw everything that I've had to do with this person, if he knew the whole background situation, he would understand why this reaction. And he would, he would really start to see and, and probably even himself feel the same kind of do you hear it? It's a lot of words to say, I don't want to do what God told me to do. Oh, I'm saved by grace. Amen. You'll never hear differently at Hope Church. But ooh, isn't it disgusting to use the glory of God's grace to approve sin in your life? Ew. And... Ew. I don't know if you found this in your world, but James helps us to see it. And he helps us to see it in a way, just like James does throughout this whole book, that's so helpful because he gives us a very clear picture. Let's read it. James chapter 1, look at verse 22. He says, hey, be doers of the word. Don't be hearers only and deceive yourselves. For if anybody is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Here's this idea. You're looking in a mirror, and you're looking intently, and you say that you believe. But if you don't follow, it's as though after looking intently in the mirror, you walk away and just forget all the information you just got. The law which is the mirror that he's talking about, what God has given us as his commands, that law, according to James, is like a mirror that allows you to see yourself as you really are. Now, there's a humorist. That's what they say. You're not a comic. You're a humorist if you're mostly a writer. There's a humorist named Dave Barry who talks about how men, when they're in about the eighth grade, look at themselves in the mirror and decide they're normal looking and then move on to other things to think about. Women, however, don't. There's this constant kind of um, tuning up that has to happen as a lady continues to obsess over how she looks. That was written some time ago. I don't even know that it's that true anymore. 
The manscaping world has, has produced a lot of pressure on both genders to have, you know, everything looking pretty tight. We all look in the mirror. If you don't, you should. You should give yourself at least once over every day. I do, especially on Sundays when it's like not just Rachel, you know, that's going to see what's going on. Just make sure nothing crazy happened in the night. If you ever wake up and check yourself well in the mirror, you're going to find stuff. Blemishes come up. If you start growing a beard and then have to wear a mask all day, sometimes those hairs are ingrown. Ooh. You get pimples, you get new hair in unexpected places. Unibrow, everybody's like, oh, gross, whatever. Yeah, most of us are in that world. You know, we just have to take care of it. But if you're not watching, everything just sort of unites. I remember helping to lead a student ministry, and a kid came up to me, and I'm like late 20s, mid 20s, something like that. So not in the world of like old man briar patch eyebrows, but I had eyebrows that apparently were growing, and I just didn't know that that was something that was getting it crazy. And I remember this girl going like, do you ever like, check your eyebrows? <laughs> oh, what do you mean? Like, here's a new thing to be self-conscious about. And then I went home and looked, and it was like, Rachel, what? how am I even seeing? Because the eyebrows are getting bigger and longer. It happens. You have to be checking yourself. Why? Because things are not getting better. You know, silly. And then, over time, checking yourself. I mean, I don't know what the numbers are on the amount of money people pay to try and reverse the daily reminder of aging. A mirror shows you what is true. If it's a good mirror, it's showing you that there are lines set in your face. There's hair that's turning gray and receding, and you can even see death coming. See, the law shows you what you really are. Do you understand now why somebody might try to forget what they learned in the mirror? God does give us the law. He does show us who, really are, who we really are. And we have to wake up and let the fullness of who we really are impact not only our thoughts, but our actions. Ooh. We reset the stage. That's not just me being post-Thanksgiving. <laughs> I'll just move up a little bit. Uh, who we really are and being moved from thought into action, specifically with anger. So we went down to verse 22, but let's go up to verse 19, where he introduces a theme that does run through a lot of this book. When he talks about anger, let's read it together. He says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Let's take a moment to focus in on anger. Anger, like the tongue, which we'll talk about in the weeks to come, it's not the sin that can't be forgiven. It's not the grand sin that everybody just constantly ed up with. But... It is a sin that's happening regularly, and it is a sin that shows you something deeper. It's the, the smell of something rotten, and it smells a lot. 
Let's understand what anger is first. I think God has given anger as a sort of protective superpower. Anger makes you into the Hulk. As long as it's pointed in the right direction, then God's given you this facility to say, Hulk, smash! That's something that doesn't need to exist anymore. That's something that is threatening something good. And so, ha! You know, all the adrenaline and whatnot, and you're throwing cars. I think about David and Goliath, searching my um, understanding of the Scriptures, trying to think through where's a good indication of anger from a person. There's this story about David and Goliath. If you've not heard it, David was about to be king over Israel. He didn't know that yet. That's sort of spoiler. But as a young man, he's coming, and he's coming to this battle between the people of Israel and their oppressors, the Philistines. And the Philistines were sending out a champion every day, and that champion was saying, like, hey, if you beat me, our army loses and you win. But if I beat you, your army loses and we win. And the problem with this champion was that he was gigantic. Goliath was a giant. He was a mean-looking warrior-type giant. And he would call out daily not only the people of Israel, but the God that the people of Israel served. David, and the way the story is told, it's like he kind of happens in on the scene, bringing some food to his brothers, hears this giant blaspheming the name of God. Some different stuff happens. None of his motives are pure. However, there's the moment where he stands before the Philistine as the champion, not only of Israel, but of the people of God, of the worship of the, the God of the people of Israel. And he speaks to the Philistine. And you can hear the anger. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Whenever you see that, it took me a long time to learn this. Hosts is like armies. The Lord of armies, but like heavenly armies. The God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give, this is where the Bible is not G anymore. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that, is, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Whoa. And in anger, righteous anger to defend the glory of God and the people that God has specially designated, he throws a stone He takes that guy's sword, and he cuts off that guy's head. And then he rides around with Goliath's head bouncing on the side of the horse. Again, that's just the Bible. It's not PG anymore. That's what anger is supposed to do. Anger is supposed to be this hardening of a self down to a point like a spear to go out and protect what needs to be protected. That sounds like a great thing. It's like a gun. In the hands of a skilled marksman, it can provide food. It can provide protection. In the hands of an unskilled marksman. In the hands of a drunkard. In the hands of a fool. It's death for himself and everybody around him. 
Think about patterns of anger in your life and think about what it is that that anger is defending. This is where you're going to have to do a little pastoring of your own heart. I searched over the last 24 hours in my own life and I don't consider myself to be an angry person. Hello, I don't know, you know, maybe I see dust in your eyes and you see a log coming out of mine (laughs) and I am an angry person. Generally don't have that reputation. And yet, over the last 24 hours, 4.30 this morning, my dog is whining to be taken out. And I became angry. Now, what am I protecting? Am I protecting my dear little ones that are going to maybe be woken up from their slumber by this dog whining? Nope. What am I protecting? I'm protecting my honor. How dare this creature disrupt his majesty's slumber? My kids leave their shoes out. I don't know how many times I've told them where their shoes go. We Marie Kondoed the whole house. There's a place for your shoes. Why are your shoes out? Does it matter? Am I upset that the shoes are out? Or am I upset at the gall to leave shoes out in the palace of his eminence? Again, me, majesty, my glory, my ego. And they're stepping on it. Yesterday, watching karate on a Zoom call. It was a cool tournament. They did awesome. All this stuff happened. Catherine got a medal. And the other participants watching didn't mute themselves. So you heard conversations happening in other people's homes while they're watching the karate tournament as well. It's 2020. You really not know how to do a Zoom call. Well, yeah, I'm sure there's some grandpas and grandmas who don't. But again, what is my anger about? Because they don't realize the incredible significance of one of the people who is watching this Zoom call. It's not anger over disrespect of God and his glory. It's not anger about someone trying to take apart God's kingdom or work against God's initiatives. It's anger that somebody wouldn't do things my way. It's anger that's trying to protect my castle and my sovereignty. Uh Uh-oh. Brothers and sisters, I need you to start to think about when I'm angry. Go through the day. Identify it. You're probably pretty callous to it, and you don't really realize when it's happening. Think about it. Take a couple of times a day to just take a deep breath and ask yourself, am I mad right now? You'll be surprised how many times the answer is yes. When so, write it down. What am I mad about? You don't have to plumb the depths of your heart in that moment. You know, you're living life. But later in the day, check it out. Look at it. Make a little note on your phone and check it out. Yeah, I was angry. Why why was I angry? And then ask it this way. What was I protecting? See how many times it's your own pride. Do you understand why James is right when he says to clear out all this filthiness and rampant wickedness? Now, let's go back. Remember, this anger is just an example of what you see in the mirror of God's law. There's all kinds of examples, but this is the example that he's using, so we're going to use it too. Why isn't it okay? Why isn't it allowable 
as though God has just this series of different options. And he prefers you to be humble and to use your anger only in very few circumstances where you're actually protecting him in his glory. Or I am going to be angry and I am going to be a jerk and I am going to be super proud and I am going to have this idea that I'm the ruler of the universe. These are two equal options and God happens to prefer the one, but often I choose the other. No. That's looking into a mirror and then forgetting exactly who you are and what you saw. Because the law of the Lord, God's, his word to us is telling us what good and evil really are. They're not two equal and opposite options. Evil isn't really even a thing. It's a perversion. It's a shadow. It's a taking and a twisting. C.S. Lewis talks about it really, really well. He's saying good and evil aren't equal in reality. Evil, cruelty, as an example of evil doesn't come from desiring evil as such, but from a perverted sexuality, an inordinate resentment, a lawless ambition and avarice. That is precisely why it can be judged and condemned from the standpoint of innocent sexuality, righteous anger, an ordinate desire to acquire. It's not inquisitiveness, but acquisitiveness, desire to acquire. The master can correct a boy's sums because there are blunders in arithmetic in the same arithmetic which he does and does better. If, it were not even, if they were not even attempts at arithmetic, they were not in the arithmetical world at all, they couldn't be arithmetical mistakes. He's saying that there is a right way. If there wasn't a right way, then yeah, all of this would just be chaos. But God has said there is a right way. And so when we're choosing evil, we're not choosing another option, another way to get to the same place. We're choosing something good that God's made that the enemy or us in our own hearts have twisted and torn apart. Oh, man. Yesterday, we were making homemade pizzas. It was so cool, so good. You're making all the little toppings and stuff. And we had some ricotta cheese in the ricotta cheese in the refrigerator. And I was really excited about putting some of that on. It doesn't add a lot of taste, but it's sort of fancy. So I was going to add ricotta. And we got all the kids' pizzas done, and they're in the oven, and now we've got our pizzas rolled out and made. And then I go, it's like last step to add this ricotta cheese on it, and I crack it open, and it's moldy. Because we don't make pizzas that often. So like the last time we used it, you know, it ends up being six months ago or whatever. But you crack it open... And you see ricotta cheese, and then you see black and hairy mold all over it. What is that? That's sin. It's not just some other option, ricotta cheese versus blue cheese. It's something that was good that has turned. And once you turn the lights on, you can't unsee that mold. Once you open it up with the lights on and go, ew, you can't just turn the lights off and go, well, let's just deal with it. Ricotta cheese is a little crunchy. No problem. What? Okay, now do you see why James is saying that you can't look at yourself in the mirror and then walk away and do the things that you saw were disgusting? 
You can't agree with God that this stuff is awful and wicked and, ew, gross, you know. And then walk away from the mirror and forget all about it and then just start consuming and enjoying all the stuff that God says is black, hairy mold. Do you see? It matters. God has given us a right way. He's given us a law that shows us who we are, who we should be. And he promises that he's going to write that law down deeper. Jeremiah 31. So God in the Old Testament has chosen this people out for himself, the people of Israel, and he's walked with this people through the becoming of a nation and their taking of the promised land and their sin. All their rampant, ugly sin to the point that he allows them to even be conquered, split up and conquered. And in that exile, when they've been taken out of the land, he gives to his prophets these promises that he's not just going to leave them gone forever. Their wickedness and their accepting of what is not his way, of, of the idols that he hates, is not going to be the end of the people of Israel. No, he says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Look at how James finishes his little segment on, on anger. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. What's he saying? He's saying that that law that God's given is not just there to crush you. It is there to be a word on your soul. In another place in the New Testament, in 1 Peter, he says, As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Start putting these pictures together. A mirror, a planted seed, holy, not for the sake of holiness, not for the sake of pride, but holiness so that you can be with him. Holiness because you are with him and he is holy. I will be their God. They will be my people. This uniting together. What's he's describing? He's describing the way things should have been from the beginning. When he made us as image bearers, that is to be a mirror. That's what you were called to be initially, this thing that shines out to the world, the light of God. Him and his holiness is reflected off you because you have submitted to his way and his holiness. He has implanted this word in you, this mustard seed in you, and it is becoming a tree. Psalm 1, that you are becoming this righteous man that's like a tree planted by streams of water that produces its fruit in its season. And all that he does, he his he prospers. His, his leaf does not wither. Do you see? You're not just a mirror. You're not just a tree. You're his. We had Jacob and Lucy's wedding, and I'm standing like right here, and they're standing right there, and I'm talking about how it's a picture of Christ in the church, and I said he could kiss his bride, and woo, you know, smoochy, smoochy. <laughs> Why does it tickle your heart? Well, if you're a believer, it's not just the thought of like, I'm going to kiss my lady later. 
you're a believer, it's because you're looking forward to what it shows, to what it pictures when you're with him forever. When, when two become one, that God would call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Do you see? Then, of course, here's the question. How? How? I can't be that. I'm angry all the time. When I look at myself in that pure um, picture of myself in the mirror that God's given in his law, I see wickedness, rampant wickedness. Okay. That's the whole point of Christianity. The word of God that he has placed in us isn't just his law. It's the word made flesh. It's Jesus the only one who really was a perfect mirror of God and his glory, the only one who really was a tree planted down deep, the only one who really was with God the Father totally and gave that up, taking our separation so that we could be united. The only one who really did have righteous anger. The other place where I can see righteous anger in the scriptures is Christ. As he walks into the temple and he flips the tables of the money changers and makes a whip out of cords to drive him out, calling that place a place of prayer. It doesn't benefit him personally. He is inflamed by fury at the blasphemy against the holiness of God. And the other place I see his anger is when he curses the fig tree. He shows the disciples a fig tree without fruit. And he curses it. It's his only destructive miracle. Why? Why does he curse a tree without fruit? Christian, why does he curse a tree, a thing that is supposed to be presenting fruit that doesn't have it? Well, it sounds a lot like James. Don't be here and not a doer. If you're here and not a doer, what are you? Now, I'm not trying to heap a bunch of shame on you. I'm trying to call to mind for you what God has called you to do. It is his will for your life, your sanctification. I don't want to be that tree. I want to be the Psalm 1 tree. I know that I'm not, but I'm going to go to Jesus. I'm going to be found in him, be forgiven by him, have that word planted in me. I'm going to receive it with humility and weakness, uh, meekness and say, Lord, Forgive me for my pride, the anger that stems from my pride. And give me by your grace, this grace, this gospel, this goodness of your love, so that I be changed and become a mirror to the world. Do you see? Let's go to Christ and receive that love, the only love that really can change us. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we pray right now that you would plant this word down in our hearts, that we would receive with meekness the calling that you've given us to be like you. And we're not going to be like you in order to be with you, but because through the grace of what you've done through Christ, we are and will be with you forever. So Father, begin now, continue now that work, that implanted word that you've already done in us to change us, to conform us into the likeness of Christ. Not so that we will be yours, but because we are yours forever. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.